Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jayanelli, and I can't wait to build my D&D Is It Goblin Electromancer. I'm Brian Dawes, and I cannot wait to be a Boros Reckoner. I'm Lorelai Weissel, and I can't wait to be a Demir Mailman. <laughs> and that's not even a joke. Tell them about your idea. It's so good. The disclaimer is I have never played D&D before, ever. So Ravnica is the first introduction for me to kind of cross the streams into D&D and is very comfortable for me coming from Magic. So I don't know why I thought this, but people being in the wrong place at the wrong time and having to go on adventures is really funny to me. And as I'm reading the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, I get to the Demir section and it talks about all the different jobs they do and suggestions for whatnot. And like Demir Courier is one of those things, like literally a mailman. The image in my head was of the postman from Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess basically being a member of a badass adventure party and how awkward and funny that is and how out of place they are. That's just so funny to me, especially in the context of Ravnica, where you literally have heroic soldiers in the Boros and hybrid monstrosities coming out of the Simic and battle angels and sneaky vampires and reveling demons and then just like a mailman. So it's been fun for me to kind of poke through and figure out how to actually make this character work. And I think I'm going to have a lot of fun with it. I think this character idea sounds amazing, and I can't wait to see it in action. And, you know, Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica is excellent. Yeah, it is out at your local game stores and through D&D Beyond Online right now. It will come out in other stores later this month. But you should go get it from your local game store and help them out. The is it in this get an amazing spell called, I think it's Chaos Bolt or something like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a spell that was in Xanathar's Guide to Everything as well, but it's a sweet spell. One complaint, though, about this book, Tempest Clerics is not one of the suggested class breakdowns for the Boros skill, and I can't understand why. If anything was more Boros than a plate-wearing badass who's throwing lightning bolts around, nothing says that more than a Boros Reckoner that could also double as a Tempest Cleric. So, come on, man. The good news with D&D is that if you want to mix and match things beyond what the book recommends, you can. So, for example, just a hint at another character idea I have. Obviously, Simic Hybrid. That's going to be my jam at some point as well. While the book recommends your Simic Hybrids be a rogue or a fighter, and if they're a fighter, probably a champion. I'm sitting here just absorbing information about D&D, and I kind of like the idea of a Simic Hybrid Eldritch Knight and get some of that basic spell casting in there and defensive magic, because that is exactly how the Simic play in Magic the Gathering. And translating that almost literally over to D&D sounds like a fun little experience. Have fun with it, folks. I hope people, by the time this episode comes out, have started maybe doing some one-shots. If you have the Guildmaster's Guide, there's a little one-shot in there with Krenko. We'll talk specifically about this book in a couple weeks. There's a lot of cool little lore info in there, but just remember that this is D&D's version of Ravnica, and things are set up in such a way to work with D&D, which means not necessarily everything in there is going to be 100% canon. Also on the D&D front, 
We mentioned the Lore You Should Know segments on the D&D Twitch channel with Ari Levich, who is a D&D creative member who also used to work for Magic. And he's been doing interviews about each of the 10 guilds. He's gone through eight of them so far and last week finished up the final episode with the Orzhov and the Demir. So we're going to link to that. So definitely go check that out. We should also mention that the new IDW Magic the Gathering Chandra comic, number one, has been delayed a week till December 5th. That isn't terribly unusual in the comics industry. There are always a lot of delays. So just keep an eye out. Uh, I don't know if this affects any of the other comics yet or not. The last thing we want to mention is pretty bad news, actually. Chris Latoyal, who was one of the major story designers, you saw his name beginning around Kaladesh, but he was working on magic for about a year during the Gatewatch saga, and his wife had a stroke, and there's a GoFundMe up for Chris. Now, what I want to mention about Chris real quick is that he's actually the first staffer from Wizards of the Coast who followed me on any of my social media. He was incredibly nice to people who reached out to him, and he's just all around a good guy. If you have the money, go ahead and show a little support for his family. Yep, we will have the link for that GoFundMe campaign. Chris is absolutely one of the best people that I've had the pleasure of interacting with from Wizards. Tremendously nice, tremendously appreciative of the fandoms of all the work that he has done. He's done not just writing for Magic, but for a bunch of smaller games. And a little game you might know called Mass Effect. It sucks. Healthcare in America sucks. This is just a crappy situation. The best to Chris and and his wife and, and their family. And I really hope everything turns out okay for them. He cared a great deal about the Vorthos community. He paid attention to all the little blogs and what people were saying. So, you know, I think it's about time for the community to support him back. Moving on to listener questions. Our only question of the week is from Jason Vorthos on Twitter. Jason asks, what kind of prequel would you like to see represented on cards? For example, a cycle of cards representing how Tezzeret took control of the consulate. There's a lot of potential there. Core 2019 did a really good job of giving me a prequel I didn't know I wanted. Well, I knew I wanted the Elder Dragon War, but I didn't know I wanted that story. But each plane, I would say, has some sort of prequel potential that I would love to see. I would love to see how Alara got sundered. I would like to see how Merit Lage got sealed beneath the ice. I would love to see how Tezzeret took control of the Infinite Consortium. All of those sound like cool story space that could expand the lore without necessarily having to fall victim to prequelitis, where you have to reference a whole lot of things that a lot of prequels do. So Lorelai, what about you? There's a small detail from And Peace Shall Sleep. Shout out to Buren Boer and his blog Multiverse in Review for his summary of And Peace Shall Sleep which tells the tiny little detail that in order to create the Thalids, Thelen, the Havenwood Elf, borrowed some magical technology from the Order of the Ebon Hand that they had used to build the Thralls, which is fascinating because the Thralls and the Thalids are the only two species 
that survived the fall of the empires and the cataclysmic descent into the Ice Age. Sarpedia is pretty much barren of life except for them now. And how did that happen? How did the Ebon Hand get that technology too? Because there are lots and lots of fan theories about that. And we've mentioned we've mentioned a little bit on this podcast before that there are some interesting clues and connections that might signal that Gix, the demonic Frexian Praetor from the original Thran Civil War, maybe was Torak the supreme deity that is worshipped by the Order of the Ebon Hand. There's a lot of connections between that cult and a cult that worshipped Gix, and we also see thralls on Wrath, so they might be somewhat related to a Frexian creation. We also had a captured Frexian spy in a short story that involved Endric Sar, the person who created the thralls. So Frexians were spying in Sarpedia, which is curious, and there's just so many fascinating connections that are never officially explored, so don't take any of that as canon, but if you're going to go do prequel stuff and want to, like, dig through some interesting connections and some fanon and make stuff official and get me really excited, show me the origins of the Order of the Ebon Hand and show me the origins of the Thalids. That's, that's juicy stuff. That's a really cool one. And Brian? Well, I've got to stay on brand, so I'm interested in a lot of the elf-related stuff. Like, I would love to know how Eladomri rose to power before the overlay and I'd also like to know more about Shalai and her interaction with the survivors of Lanawar. And I'd also like to know a little bit more about Seton. He kind of got a, his gruesome end in Chainer's Torment, but I'd like to know a little bit more about him. He's not really an elf, but, you know, green, druidic, I'm all about that. So those are the things that I'd be interested in as far as prequels are concerned. Yeah, Otari is actually fascinating in that regard because they didn't create it until Odyssey Block. It was never part of Dominari's expansive history before then, so we really don't know anything about it from all these other catastrophic events in Dominari's history, like what happened on Otaria during the Frexian invasion. We don't know. Technically, we don't know what happened on Sarpedia either, but that's less exciting because there was nobody there. Magic has a lot of lore, y'all. 25 years, you build up a lot of unanswered questions. The other one I want to mention, because it's Ravnica topical, is the signing of the Guild Pact, and how exactly these 10 armies were forced, or coerced, or convinced to come to the bargaining table there. Like, I want to hear the story of how Rakdos signed the Guild Pact. Not only how Rakdos signed the Guild Pact, but how he got convinced to be the guild that is in charge of mining operations. He is lazy as hell, and they assigned him with one of the tasks that takes the most physical labor in the operation of an entire world. It's like running the horse, is that what they call it, when they're working out mares to get all their energy out so that you can break them? I don't know anything about horses. The mining was like slaves. Oh, I know. Yeah, but I'm saying that's how they could, like, they, they burden him with the most labor-intensive thing. 
so that they like all his underlings are so exhausted from their actual task that they can't bother to terrorize the world because they have boundless energy. So then why would Rakdos sign an agreement that did that? Like, it's so mysterious. I love it. And I kind of like not having an answer because you can kind of wonder and come up with insane theories about why Rakdos would sign that agreement. Also, who the hell is Simic? Yeah, that's a really good one, too. There has been two different word of gods presented. One was that Simic was a Vidalcan. And I believe the other one was that Simic was an elf, like the third kind of elf, kind of like Momir Vig was. But how that actually works out, we don't know. And we'll talk about those third mysterious kinds of elves when we do our Simic episode. If you want to bring this whole thing full circle already, Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica mentions that none of the Perrins were human. So if that holds up in canon, which it, that's one of those details where... They wouldn't make something up different for D&D than from the world building they did for Ravnica. So that seems like pretty trustworthy confirmation that Simic at least was not human and was probably either Vidalcan or Elf, or maybe both. Maybe a half-elf, half-Vidalcan. That would be interesting. Or a merfolk. Since we're talking about worlds where humans weren't important, let's go back to Lorwyn. Yeah. I want to know more about that whole shift dynamic than we got in what in the books how did the great aurora start yeah that, that seems really intriguing let's move on to this week's magic story bound and bonded which is the fifth and final guilds of ravnica story i have to interject here because it is criminal that bound and bonded is not the name of the recto story <laughs> you know i was thinking the same thing I'm like this is a very good bondage name Used for the Celestians. Like, have you seen the art on Lizaldo the Blood Witch? That is just 100% Dominatrix, and that is the Rakdos. If the Rakdos story for Ravnica and Legions doesn't have a name even kinkier than this, I'm going to be disappointed. So since this is Selesnia, and we have a resident Selesnian expert, I'm going to go ahead and let him take the show. Our story starts with the protagonist, Tarek who is a Celestian elf who used to be a worm trainer for the Celestian army, being chastised by a childhood friend of his named Amberlin, who is a dryad artifact broker. Yeah, you figure out how that works. And then they're living in a Celestian compound, and she's berating him because she can just see it on his face that he's about to go visit this orphanage where a number of kids including the child of some people who died in an accident that he caused, allegedly, riding his worm a little bit too close to an ancient Orzov Basilica. The story makes it very apparent that he's been um, funneling as much as money as he could because he's really guilty about it. He feels really guilty about it. And while the berating is going on, Amberlin mentions that the neighbors have seen and heard another worm being raised in their house and Tarek just shrugs it off to say there's no way that I would do that he's very defensive especially when Amberlin goes to lift the covers off of his bed he gets really terse with her and says there's no way I would do that and she concedes the point it's like uh, 
What kind of person would be delusional enough to keep a dangerous animal in a residential cooperative? <laughs> and he's like, you know what? You're right. What kind of person? Under his breath. And it, it's it's beautiful because you can see it coming. You can see it coming. I love foreshadowing a lot. And foreshadowing doesn't have to necessarily be sneaky to be good. Sometimes kind of obvious foreshadowing helps build excitement for the things you know are going to happen later and this was a fun story for that kind of foreshadowing and she does a lot of it and it's all excellent when i was rereading it to prepare for the podcast it, it just it smacked me upside the head i was like that was beautiful and i didn't even know i wanted it but it was great but anyway proceeding on he is walking to the orphanage money in tow where he's walking through the various districts of Ravnica, noting that, you know, whoever's in charge of the district may change as he passes through different districts, but there's always some kind of oppression one way or another by one of the guilds. And it gives us a little bit of insight on how people view some of the guilds at times. Really interesting. But as he's walking through a district really close to the church, that he chose to walk down this street because... He didn't want to be close to the basilica as he approached the orphanage. He runs into a insurance salesman, we'll call him. And the insurance salesman is a little bit abrasive with his sales pitch and is basically threatening him to pay for insurance to be escorted through the area because he's, he's noticed that Tarek is walking through the area a lot. So Tarek first tries to show him some shears, and then once the guy doesn't get the hint, he drops some seeds of magical ivy, and the guy gets trapped in some magical leaves, and Tarek just leaves him there as he rushes up to the orphanage. Once he gets to the orphanage, he's trying to be as conspicuous as possible and not trying to draw the attention of uh, a certain child but in the process still manages to run into another child and that child recognizes him and thoroughly berates him which is pretty funny because he just takes it he's just like why won't this end the takedowns that these kids vocalize off the cuff are savage john mulaney of the comedian has a bit about this in one of his stand-up shows about how like 13-year-old girls are the people most capable of just immediately cutting to your emotional core and damaging you on a psychological level just by passing them on the street. And, like, <laughs> it's this. This is it. They just have no filter, and they are savage and brutal to Tarek. As this is going on, the, the child that he was hoping to be able to avoid was the child of one of the two people slain in the accident that caused him to lose his job, overhears and comes up to his defense, threatening the first kid. And after that kid leaves, she promptly lays into him in her own special way. It's not as abrasive, but it's even more cutting coming from her, calling him a creeper and all sorts of things. I was laughing so hard. Basra, the little girl, is 12, and you don't find that out until later. So I wasn't, at this point, sure if this was a 16-year-old yelling at him or, like, an 8-year-old. And that's a big difference. And it was so funny and so savage. And exactly, like, what you would think. 
I've said it in past episodes, and I'm going to say it again. Nikki is so good at making the high fantasy setting feel like a realistic urban environment because the conversation Basra has with Tarek at this point feels like something you would see on like a sitcom or a reality show. It has that bite and wit to it, and it's just fantastic and so fun to read. Agreed completely. While this berating is going on, she accuses him of not having any friends, and he goes on this litany of naming off all of his friends and what they do when he mentions that Amberlin is an artifact broker specializing in antiquities. Bazda mentions that her parents found a crescent-shaped piece of carved stone with a hole in the center and golden symbols etched all over that just looks ancient. He offers to bring it to Amberlin to get it identified and see to see how much it's worth and whatnot. Bazda apparently trusts him with it just far enough for him to get walking home and then she follows him because, duh, she doesn't trust him. They get back to Terex and Amberlin's house and it is an awkward situation where Amberlin is home and she's getting ready to break the news that she and the others are getting ready to move to better accommodate a new job when she realizes, oh wait, he's got a little girl with him and that's probably the kid of the people he's so guilty about killing. So she has to be polite and she can't really be as forthright as she'd like to be. One of the others... Severin shows up and just breaks the news, not really realizing what's going on. Tarek is not super happy and he storms off to his room. Tarek, after making them feel guilty a little bit, convinces them to go on one final excursion. Not like just going to some gardens or whatever to have a picnic or whatever. He wants to go and see where that artifact is found and see what that's all about. And... Brings up the fact that, oh yeah, yeah, I have this worm here. Sorry, but this is perfect. We need this to go investigate this church, and it's here, so might as well use it. And Amberlynn is quick on the pickup, like, wait a minute. You were hiding a worm under your bed? I was like, no, not quite. The worm is the bed, which is... (laughs) What kind of person would do that? Duh, he wasn't (laughs) doing that, because... It wasn't under the bed. It was the bed. Like, that's it's, it's gold. Technically correct. The best kind of correct. <laughs> True story. Oh, man. <laughs> so he feeds the worm a little bit of jerky and says, good girl. And then Bazda wants to pet the worm. And <laughs> Amberlynn is like, nah, you cannot do that. Oh, man. It, it's hilarious. Like, I was in stitches reading this it's like when you have a little kid and they have a little puppy and they're they're trying to hide it from their parents when the jig is up and the puppy is revealed to everyone involved it's like it's too cute not to try to pet it right so he's able to convince them to go investigate this church because amberlin is still starstruck over this artifact and of course she says all right we'll go take a look If anything feels wrong, we'll be leaving immediately. Now, everyone, I want you to count on one hand how many times that actually happens at any time it's said in any kind of story. 
Now that we've established that never happens, let's continue. <laughs> They're riding on the back of this worm who is cutting through the rock. And the metaphysics of this is very interesting, actually. It cuts through the rock using subsonic frequencies that temporarily renders the stone into a state of liquid, which is super interesting to me. It's basically melting the rock using sound. I don't think I've ever heard of that before, and that's super cool to me. It seems like it might be the kind of high-frequency vibrations that break glass or like shake molecules apart and stuff in science fiction but applied in a fantasy setting where the sound because it's such a high frequency the literal bonds in the rock loosen and it liquefies that's the best way i could explain it i think it's really interesting or you can just shortcut and say it's magic but as they get close to the basilica the worm gets spooked and he's able to get her back on course temporarily. And they get to a cavern with sculptures and statues all over the place. They get close to a specific statue that Amberlin goes to touch. And the statue starts moving. Worm takes off. And Amberlin is starting to get pulled into the hole. So they start trying to grab her and... The stone breaks apart, and the floor starts to crumble, and they go down a hole. They fall to the bottom of this this hole, which, of course, is just like any other Scooby-Doo episode. It's not a trap door, but it's close enough, right? Amberlynn's getting real sassy about how she was kind of told you so. Tarek is trying to remain on the ball, and he's determined not to let more bad things occur because of him. In this specific spot, particularly, he's really guilty. He feels guilty about getting his friends into more trouble, so he wants to make sure that it doesn't end badly. So he continues on, and after finding out that some of the group are moving because of him, because they were trying to wait till he hit rock bottom before they could start building him back up, and it, he took too long. That's a big mood. That's the truth. <laughs> Have you ever been such a sad sack that you just can't ever seem to hit rock bottom? Well, and like, have you ever been in such a sad state that the literal guild who will accept anybody because they're magical hippie communists doesn't want to be with you? But also really humanizing for the Selesnia. Because Amberlin even has a moment where she doesn't want to yell and then... Tarek says, look, just yell. Yeah, like, you're allowed. You don't have to play nice just because we're Selesnians. And so then she does yell at him. And, like, it gets to be not nice and a little messy. And the relationships aren't always so perfect and great as a Selesnia recruiter might tell you they could be. Because these are still people. And as much as you try to ignore your personal selfish motives... They still exist, and that struggle is really present in this story. After Amberlynn reveals that they're leaving because of him, he steals himself, tells them to get Basta back to the orphanage, and he's going to figure out what's going on ahead. So he continues down the hallway that's open before them. He, he hears 
Flash smells the familiar scent of worm and activity ahead of him. He is just focused on trying to figure out what's going on ahead of him. He sees a machine and some ghosts and Venorzov Pontiff working in this machine. These worms are blasting the walls of the chamber looking for something. The gargoyle surprises them and they knock some stuff over and... Oh, because it, 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 it's a mouse. Because a mouse shows up on his shoulder. And he's a loxodon, and they're playing with the elephants are afraid of mice trope. Oh, man. <laughs> you didn't you didn't get that one? Anywho. Well, that's Horton Here's a Who. That's another elephant. It was so great. The moment the mouse showed up, I was, I was cracking up a little bit because I knew what was coming. Yeah, the gargoyles get them, and the pontiff presses them into service, because clearly they shouldn't be down there, even though I'm kind of wondering how that's supposed to work, because do they not have any choice but to sign? I think part of the magic is that they were compelled to sign. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They start working in this small mining operation, and digging and moving rock and emptying buckets of worm saliva. There's a point where Tarek tries to escape and rip up the contract and free everyone. And then when the pontiff catches him, he like weaves the spell that rebinds his little notebook. And he compels Tarek to sign even longer under the contract and brags about how he's going to be in debt for generations. And general not good Orshav villain talk. Typical scumbag Orzhov. While they're working, he actually realizes that two of the ghosts that he's working with are actually the parents of Bazda, and he gets it in his head that he is going to save them all, because, you know, he already feels guilty about getting Bazda possibly into this trouble down here and killing them, even though we find out later that the uh, pontiff might have had more to do with the structural instability of the building than he was, but he might have just been the trigger. Oh, the pontiff fully admits to accidentally destroying the building and that Tarek was just kind of at the wrong place at the wrong time. They staged this whole trickery thing to get the pontiff to fall down this well shaft and they try to convince this thrall to join them in altering the terms of their agreement but the thrall jumps down the well, or what? this hole, not well, and the pontiff uses the thrall's body parts to heal himself and climbs back up. But by that time, they've got control of this money-minting machine. That It's not even money-minting. It turns copper into gold. If you read the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, there's a little section about the money on the plane, the, the Zibs and Zenos, and... The Azorius, the Boros, and the Orshav all mint coins, but in different metals and different denominations. So there's 100 zibs to one zeno, so it's like dollars and cents. So the Orshav only mint three different kinds of coins. There are the copper one zib, basically pennies, and then they have platinum 10 zeno coins and platinum think they're 50 xeno coins or they might have been 100 so so basically the orshav mint pennies and like super expensive coins so what this machine does is takes the pennies and turn them into expensive gold pieces so you can literally 
take poor people's money and turn it into gold. And that's how this pontiff rose up in the guild. Scumbag. <laughs> yep. It's it's a pretty great plan, honestly. Yeah, it is. But they take control of this machine and they start putting off their own gold so they pay off their debts, including the debts of Bazda and her parents. They free themselves and they steal this gold machine and happily ever after. Yay! <laughs> I mean, it wasn't really happily ever after. They get back, and there's still, like, tensions in the group, and they still don't know how they're going to figure out the moving situation. So this story felt like a little, like, D&D campaign almost to me. It felt like a little one-shot adventure where everyone gets this quest after Bazda has this little machine part. And by the end, it's like there's closure to the adventure, but not necessarily to the dynamics of the adventure party. Yeah, there's hooks to other adventures. Yeah, it was feel-good but not contrived in that things are better but they're not perfect, which, again, grounds the Selesnia in a really realistic way, I think. Oh, yeah, and most important part, the worm found its way home and the neighbors are all screaming. <laughs> that was honestly <laughs> the best part of this whole story, is they come back and the neighbors are <laughs> And the neighbors have a worm in their house. The neighbors were a thing that was woven throughout the story where they were like complaining because they thought they saw something outside the window and then they thought they heard worm sounds. And then by the end, the worm is literally just sleeping in their bed, which is fantastic. All right. So let's talk about the overall quality of the Guilds of Ravnica stories. So when we first heard that or first figured out that there's going to be five world-building stories, I think there was a bit of grumbling because it had been four years since we had gotten a lot of world-building-style stories instead of main plot stories. But for me, at least, I think the quality of these stories was so high that they were just really, really exciting to get into. Not just high quality, they were a kind of story that I had always personally enjoyed reading. Because we hadn't had them in so long, I think I kind of forgot how much I missed them. It was just refreshing to get stories that didn't have anything to do with the main plot, and we got to explore world building and got to attune ourselves with some of these little minor characters and everyday folks of Ravnica. I agree. The, the story was a little breath of fresh air, and I loved how it made the world seem really lived in. I don't feel like we've had enough of that in Magic Story. We get a fair amount of that in different places, but I feel like it's never been as much as it has been in this round of stories, and I've really enjoyed it, even if it doesn't have anything to do with the main storyline. I'll be excited to get that main storyline, but I, I, I have enjoyed what we've got in these stories. So what was everyone's favorite story so far? You can't ask me questions like that. They're too hard. Lorelei, name one. You can't make me. Yeah-huh. <laughs> I think the is it? That's a good choice. That story had so many back and forth moments. Structurally, there were so many reversals. It was a wild adventure. It was the most bonkers story, as its a story should be. I think Nikki really understood 
the guilds and how their story should feel. Not just in terms of the words and the kinds of stories that you tell for the guilds, but how the overall story feels viscerally as you read it. There was this sense of horrific manipulation in the Demir story. There was this zany adventure spirit where lots of good and lots of bad happened and you have to make good out of the bad in the Izzet story. And the Boros story was all about pursuing the truth and justice even when things are looking very seedy even from inside your own police precinct. And the Golgari story was very much about cycles and conflicts between factions and life and death and the relationship between all these things as individual forces striving but within an interconnected system. And then this Selesnia story about friendship and compassion and unity and the kind of strength you can get from teamwork and planning and really just like the simple joy of having I don't want to say a good time with your friends but having an experience with your friends regardless of what that experience is there's a sense of shared accomplishments and shared pain wrapped up into this Elesnia story, which I think is at the heart of, of the guild itself. And just all these stories felt so gilded in that way, like really structurally at their core. And for an outside writer who didn't have a whole lot of experience with magic beforehand to be able to come in and work with these guilds and create these stories that told guild stories, but told them in a way that felt like those guilds and had themes of those guilds and had so much of each guild in those stories. That was just really fantastic. See, this is why it's hard to pick the favorite. I I, I think the is it, and not just because of the Simic cameo, but but I I think the zaniness and the the narrative reversals in that story made it my favorite. I don't know. I really like the Golgari one too. Damn it. Okay, I'm done. I'm not gonna talk anymore. What about you, Brian? It's really close for all the reasons that Lorelai said, but, oh man, this is so hard. I'm trying to figure out if I like the Boros and the Celestia ones more than the others just because of my personal biases toward those guilds. But at the same time, like, I have to recognize that the Is It one was really great. All the stories were great, let's just put it like that. But in my personal hierarchy of them all, I guess it's Selesnia Boros, Is It, at the top. I guess it would kind of shift with the day. Is It was probably the best of them, but my Naya leanings are kind of favoring me toward the other two. But if I have to be completely honest with myself, the Is It one's probably the best one. Like, they're all so good. So good. Like, if, if Is It is 10... Celestia's 9.9, Boros is 9.8, and (laughs) it's, like, I just, I enjoyed all of them so much, and I cannot wait until we get to the Ravnica Allegiance story so we can get the other five guilds, but it's just, like, I'm really impressed with what Nikki Drayden has done here, and... I'm actually looking forward to picking up a couple of her other books just to see what else she's been doing because I've been really impressed with what she's been able to do with this world. 
you know, I just actually did pick up one of her novels. I had made a point of picking up one of the, either one of the more recent stories by each of these new authors, and they've all been really great. Like, I read Martha Wells' Murderbot series, which was a whole lot of fun. I read Black Wolves by Kate Elliott. I've read Hammer on Bones by Cassandra Kaw. I picked up The Prey of the Gods by Nikki Drayden, so I'm excited to read that one. Alright, I would say my favorite also is the Is It story. Well, there's a big surprise. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I think the Boros story I have to rank really highly there. God, they're all pretty good, but yeah, those two I say were my top. I told you, you can't add, this is a hard question. So we know Ravnica Allegiance comes out in January, and we will likely see Nikki's stories uh, soon after, either late January or early February, I would imagine. They haven't announced that yet. What they have announced is that Magic Story will be back with a beloved plane. We don't know what plane that is yet. In early December with something special for the holidays. I don't know what that is, but I guess we can expect a little more story than we were expecting. That rather than having to wait six weeks, we only have to wait a couple. My assumption is this is their first real push into the we're going to publish magic story that has nothing to do with the card sets and do some cool stuff that we couldn't normally do, and I'm looking forward to it. My gut is that it will be set on Kamigawa with Tamiyo because there's a card from that block called Gifts Ungiven, and we're heading into the Christmas season. It's, it's, it's pretty, pretty obvious that it's going to be something wintry at least. So, final thoughts. So, my final thought is that I got in to Dios Boss's commissions. If you've seen some really good caricature blends of people and magic characters that people have been using as avatars, that's at Dios Boss's work. He opens his commissions irregularly. I want to say like once every two to three months at the soonest. So I managed to swoop in there and get a slot. And I am excited to see my Doretti mashup <laughs> coming. So keep an eye out on my avatar for that on Twitter. Lorelai? Everyone's going to have one of those. I'm going to be like the only one. There's a purring cat right next to me who, who really wants some more pets. I am uh, recording it in my girlfriend's apartment. Uh, she and her roommates just got a cat a couple days ago. And it is so cute. And my final thought is that I have an animal, so... I'm I'm done with this podcast for now. This is no more. Brian? My final thought is that the Packers are playing the Seahawks, and I am late to the show, so let's get this over with. Okay, I lied. I'm back because I still have to do a Patreon reminder. Because if you love listening to the Vorthos cast, you can log on to patreon.com slash the Vorthos cast and help support our show. We can't continue making these episodes without the support of all our fans. And we like to thank everyone who donates and keeps this show running. For y'all, we have our Discord community. As soon as you donate, you can get access to that and discuss all kinds of exciting Vorthos stuff. New Magic Arena stuff. We just got friend matches, so if you're looking for matches, this is definitely a venue where you can find people to play with. We're talking about all sorts of exciting new 
video game things. We've got Pokemon Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee just came out this weekend. We got Smash Bros. coming up soon. We got Ravnica D&D. If you are looking for magic communities, this is definitely one you want to be a part of. Everyone who donates to our Patreon gets access to that Discord. And one final note. This week is Thanksgiving in the United States, so we are not going to be recording and there will not be an episode next Monday. We're giving ourselves a week off to go stuff our faces with turkey and all sorts of other food. So I hope y'all enjoy the Ultimate Masters previews and we will be back in two weeks to talk all about those flavor gems. Thank you for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.